Um, let me ask you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, I, <laughs> it actually took me a second to remember that. I think I had a protein bar, actually. That's not good. Uh, it sounds good. Sounds healthy. Sounds like a good way to start the day. Hi, I'm Tim. I'm a father, son, brother, friend, and storyteller. Welcome to We're Only Human. This is a podcast of interviews with people from all walks of life to learn how they broke free from their scripted lives to start writing their own script. We're digging into their roller coaster journeys to learn the skills and techniques they use to live life intentionally. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today I'm joined by Amber Nasland, who is a mother, a daughter, a senior content marketing evangelist at LinkedIn, where she helps LinkedIn's business customers with content marketing. And previously you ran your own business back in the day. And then way back in the day in 2011, which feels like decades ago, uh, you were co-author of a best-selling book called The Now Revolution. Does that feel like when I bring that up, are you like, oh, that's right. That was in this decade, or I guess last decade. Yeah, it actually, it feels like another lifetime ago in so many respects. <laughs> I, the only thing that keeps it sort of top of mind is, believe it or not, it, occasionally I still get a royalty check. So I'm just like, oh, people are still buying. <laughs> oh, that must be <laughs> fun. You're just going about your day and then some money shows up. You're like, oh, that's right. Yeah, it's like, oh, I did that. I did. We did that thing. That was kind of fun. But it does. It feels like forever ago. I mean, my life is so different now than it even than it was was then that it feels like forever does it feel different in a good way yeah 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 that was the time of my life where i was like i was super i don't know super workaholic-y and really just working crazy hours and determined to get the chip off my shoulder by proving something to somebody i don't know who but uh, i'm a much more grounded and mellow person now i think where did the chip come from i I can relate here i feel like I've gone through a similar um, epiphany almost, like realizing you don't have to be grinding away every moment. Yeah. But for you, like, where did that initially come from? Like, why even go down that path? Yeah, that's really, it's a good question. I think it was a lot internal. Like, I don't think that there was, you know, my, my dad was a pretty accomplished executive, but he wasn't a workaholic. So I don't, I don't know that I like, it's not that I learned it by example. I think actually a lot of it stemmed from insecurity. Um, me, I never graduated college, which was a big deal for me. Um, and I didn't graduate for some really personal reasons. And so it was like, I always felt a little bit inadequate. So I felt like when I got out into the workforce, I really needed to double, triple, quadruple prove myself. And to me, the only way I knew to do that was just to work harder and faster than everybody else to prove that I deserved to be there. And I think my overachiever, like, I think that's wired into me to start with. And so that just perpetuated that over time. And working in a highly visible world like digital marketing, um, especially when with the advent of social media, and it's so easy to compare yourself to your peers and everything like visibly online, it gets, I don't know, I, it got to me for a while, I think. So I'm, I'm glad to be kind of on the other side of that. But it was it was pretty gnarly for a while. <laughs> I think it's a natural response to want to prove the opposite, right? Like I, I can relate to that. You, wherever the insecurity is coming from, you feel like I'm not, I'm not enough. So I'm going to be enough in these other areas so that you can overlook the part where I feel like I'm not enough. Yeah, exactly. And I, like as a, um, I mean, you could get into all kinds of philosophical discussions about that. But as a woman, I always felt insecure about everything, like my body image, my, um, my plate, I I work in a very male dominated industry. So there's a lot of that sort of situation going on. So I always felt like I had to overcompensate for that by just overdoing everything at 11. And it was it was a fast road to burnout. So I learned the hard way that that's not how you go about it. You you mentioned that you feel good having overcome that. What was the process for, was it a moment, a day, or was it a years long, all of a sudden you look back and say, wait a second, I'm no longer trying to prove anything. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I would definitely say that there were points of crisis and catharsis that sort of pushed that along, but it's definitely been years in the making. I mean, the I think the big tipping point for me was um, the business that you mentioned that I owned. And, you know, I think a lot of people, including me, always thought like the pinnacle of achievement was to go out and own your own business and be an entrepreneur. And, it's the American dream, right? Yeah, right. I mean, and you hear that and see that all over the place. It's like, don't work for the man. Yeah. You got to do your own thing. So um, I gave that a shot. And this, the the long story really short is that that business failed spectacularly, um, much to the pain of my um, my feelings of confidence. Like it was it was devastating for me financially, emotionally. And it was sort of that moment where you're like, all of that time and effort and money and hours and working myself to the bone and... That's not a guarantee of anything. And I didn't like who I'd become. I, I didn't like that um, my daughter hardly got to see me or know me or spend time with me. And so I had sort of like a, it wasn't really an epiphany, but it was like, I got to do something different. And so I spent the next several years really, I mean, I invested heavily in therapy and um asking myself what I really wanted out of life that wasn't that and systematically working to kind of put those pieces back in place. And I mean, it's been, let's see, six years since all of that happened. And I finally feel, I would say in the last year, like I'm finally getting my feet back under me. So it's not, you know, it's not an overnight process by any stretch. Well, congrats on that though. I mean, (laughs) heck, six years later, whatever it takes to feel better about it is a good a good start. Yeah, and I don't think you're ever done, but I definitely think that there is some healing that I've been through, you know, in the last yeah. five years or so that's been pretty meaningful in terms of me. That's why I can look back and be like, gosh, I hardly recognize like the human that I was um, 10 years ago. I mean, there's, there, I'm obviously the same person, in, like at my core, but there's a lot of choices that I make differently now. And I just, I feel... I feel different in the way that I approach and move through the world now. You mentioned, and you've described it this way, I've heard you describe it in the past as a spectacular failure, the business. But so as someone who is insecure, who feels like she had to prove herself and, you know, really had a something you wanted to prove to yourself, I would imagine that, you know, you thought this, you had something here that you were going after that you thought was going to be something amazing, something spectacular success, and that was going to impact the world. Yep. And then it didn't in your eyes. That had to have just like ruined you. I mean, how do you come back? I mean, we mentioned six years and then some therapy and definitely time helps a lot. But I got to imagine that was like one of the bottoms of your journey so far. Like, is that accurate? Absolutely accurate. I would say... Um, I just kind of like feel for you right now. Like I feel... <laughs> like I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened because that's got to just be terrible. Well, that's a, that's a very empathetic response, which I appreciate. But um, it, it was for sure one of the hardest things that I have ever gone through. Um, it was difficult on so many fronts. It was difficult professionally. It was difficult... Financially, I mean, I had invested pretty much my life savings in that business because, um, you know, I had worked for Radiant 6 prior to that and we were sold to Salesforce. And so all the earnings from my exit at Radiant 6 went into this business venture and it was all gone. Um, I came close to losing my house. I took on a whole bunch of debt. Oh, wow. Um, I, so it was like every level of difficult. My, you know, my business partner and I had a massive falling out, which was emotionally very difficult. And similar to any kind of split like that, you also lose friends in the process, you know, because people people pick sides. And, sure. um, and, and so anyway, like it was a very lonely, dark, difficult time for me. And the first thing I did was I, well, all I knew to do, which was like I went and got a job you know, and started working again and immersed myself in what I knew to do professionally to try to remind myself that, that the brain in my head still had some utility, <laughs> which was important Yeah, like this to me. wasn't the only, your only play here. Like there's yeah. more coming up that you can do. 
Right. And like, I still have the capacity to earn a paycheck and I still need to provide for my kid. So it was really just a lot of like one foot in front of the other for a long time. And um, interestingly, like the two um, jobs I had after that ended in layoffs, which were equally like difficult. So I, I think if nothing else, I've learned in this process that if I have nothing else to hold on to, I am I've learned that I'm resilient as hell. And I can I can get through a lot. So it helps now because when when difficult and challenging situations come up, part of me is just like, yeah, I got this. Like, it'll be fine. You know, if I if, if we did that and we survived that, like, how bad can this possibly be? So I, in that sense, I think it's made me a little bit more um, able to weather the storms but yeah you're not wrong that was a really that was a one of the hardest times i've ever gone through no question i didn't realize that the next two jobs you had you were i mean so now we're talking about i put everything i have financially emotionally everything into this it's not it fails basically like mm-hmm. you said and then you get a job you get laid off you get a job you get laid off i mean that's just you got it Oof. It was a lot. I mean, I and I the interesting thing about the the role right after that was um a really fun and interesting company, but we went through like three leadership changes of CEOs while I was there and I reported directly to the CEO, so it was <clears throat> that was challenging. And the last round of um or the middle round of people, I made some really great friends and so the the difficulties that the company came up against and the ensuing layoffs were, were no fault of anybody else of any of ours. It was just, you know, reduction in workforce stuff. But those people became really good friends of mine and they still are, but it's like, that's you, you feel like you're losing part of your family. And, uh, and then I went to work for Hootsuite and that company, like a year later hit some tough times, you know, and our, our whole brand new little department that I was brought on to build was one of the first things to go because we were one of the newest parts of the business. So yeah, two layoffs in a row, that'll do it. That'll do a number on your confidence. That's for sure. When you're just like, what is it? Like if I am magnet for disaster, <laughs> um, where is your confidence after all that? I mean, when, that, when you're first of all, after the business itself i imagine the confidence was at an all-time low yeah but then i'm sure you were able to bring it back up you got back in the workforce and said hey i'm valuable and then you get laid off and might think well all right maybe i'm not and then you get another <laughs> job like nope no i'm valuable and then you get laid off again i mean at that point yeah three like, strikes you're out right like i mean talk about resiliency where did you find the confidence or how did you keep the confidence going after that you know third strike a couple things. One is that I think in the process of going through all this, I was also learning that I am not my work. Like I'm not defined by my job because for Something a long time. we all ta- need to understand. Yeah. And that was a hard one for me for a long time because my professional accomplishments such as they were, were always a very defining factor for me. It was something I was proud of. It was something I could point to. It was something that was... Um, for me, compensating for all the other areas of my life where I wasn't feeling very secure, you know, but hey, at least least I'm really good at what I do for a living. So having to reframe some of that and rebalance my scales to realize that what mattered in my life was my daughter or the friends that I have outside of work or... Um, you know, the relationships I have with people that I care about, even the the passions and hobbies I pursue outside of work, you know, my daughter and I ride horses, and it's my happy place. So being able to spend more time riding and at the barn, which is the most analog thing you can think of, like take your phone out of your pocket, put it in the barn and leave it there. Um, rebalancing a lot of that led me to finally, I think, understand that even as good as I am professionally at what I do, it is not the sum total of what I'm worth. So it made it easier at some point. You know, interestingly, the job that I took at LinkedIn that I have now, I went from a senior, like an executive capacity to an individual contributor role, which at first was like, my ego was like, Amber, how dare you? Like, it it, it felt like a- Yeah, you're going backwards. (laughs) Right. Um, But the reality is it's actually the best professional move I've made in a long time. Like, I'm so happy there. And I have so I love the people that I work with. And I really enjoy my job. And being okay with 
that path being different than I once envisioned it and not necessarily saying to myself that I need to be a CMO in five years or I need to do all these things. I sort of did that proverbial like five-year plan, tore it up and tossed it. And I was like, whatever, man. Like I've learned that it doesn't matter. Best laid plans. Um, So I'm just kind of focusing on like living in the moment a little bit, which is weird. But um, so from a confidence perspective, I think giving myself more dimension in my life has led me to realize that um, my worth is not a job title. My worth is not where I sit on an org chart. My worth is not a byline on a book cover. And there are more important things that I want to that I want to spend time and energy on now. It's amazing how that feels, doesn't it? I, I've become more familiar with this concept too. Maybe it was through therapy, but of like, if you put all of your self-worth in one thing, like let's say your professional work, and then of course something happens, then all your self-worth is gone. But you could also, like you're describing, put your self-worth or find value in like six, seven, eight, nine different things in your life. And then if one, you know, if, Tomorrow you're a bad parent. Well, then you're not a bad person. You just, you know, that part has suffered and the next day you'll be a great parent and that kind of thing. It's, it's so like, even as I'm describing it, I'm like, well, yeah, duh. But it's like, no, we didn't realize this. (laughs) No, of course not. And especially, you know, depending on how you, who you surround yourself with or where you spend time, you get a lot of those narratives outside, you know, and if you, if you can't find some of that validation internally, you look to other places to find it. So if you're looking for a reinforcing message and I look around myself professionally, what I'm hearing is like, you got to hustle and you got to, you know, do the work and I get up at 4am and like that, those kinds of people, And I always felt really out of place because I knew that a lot of that hustle harder mentality was not who I was, but I felt like I needed to try to be. And those were some of the most uncomfortable years of my life because it was so incongruous with who I am, I think, fundamentally as a person that that chase the chase the dream and chase the dollars stuff just felt so wrong. And I didn't, it took it all kind of falling apart for me to realize that. Um, So in some ways, you could look back and say that all the trials and tribulations were the universe's way of grabbing me by the shoulders and shaking me really hard and being like, this is not you. Uh, So that that idea, what you just described has, it's starting to concern me in a good way. Every conversation I have in this podcast, this comes up of like, the universe is grabbing us in these different ways. Sometimes it's yeah. physical. I spoke with mm-hmm. someone who like not, you know, it broke her ACL or tore her ACL. But in other ways, it's mental or whatnot. But like, the universe is grabbing us. Yeah. And I think to myself, like, am I paying attention? Yeah. Like, is the universe, is, is this what, is what's going on in my life right now because the universe is grabbing me right now and saying, hey, pay attention. And if I don't, are things going to get, you know physically worse or something going to happen where the universe is like, wake up. I do think that there is a, um, one thing that I have talked about with my therapist at great length is the idea of stillness and being willing to be still long enough to hear what is, you know, not quite literally, but like hear and pay attention to what's happening around you. Um, one of the, So I like during a lot of this stuff, I was suffering from terrible, like crippling anxiety, panic attacks, like not sleeping. And one of the simplest and most elegant things that I've learned through therapy is the pause of saying, hold on, what is it that I need right now in this moment? And it could be as simple as I need a glass of water. I haven't had anything to drink in four hours or I need to get outside or I need to do something creative or, but I had spent so many years quieting all of those very, those voices whisper at you, man. They don't yell. And I think that's the whole point of the universe grabbing you. Eventually, if you don't listen, something happens and you're just like, and whether you are religiously spiritual or not, I think that there's a, Somehow, life finds a way to intervene yes. when you're like, this is not exactly. this is not your jam. So being able to keep that in check requires me slowing down 
and being willing to be still and pay attention to those signals that I'm getting from myself or externally. It's like when something feels out of balance, why is that? And what do I need to do about it? And sometimes it's not always in my control, but paying attention is progress for me because I was always like, I bulldozed right through that stuff and I paid the price for it. I I really truly believe that I paid the price for it on so many levels, but I'm I'm grateful for that because I didn't go through 80 years before that happened to me. I did it when I was 40. And it's a great way to look at it. You know, yeah. uh, I still have a lot of life in front of me to live from a different place now. And so I'm, I'm glad for that. Your whole journey and what you were describing reminds me of a past conversation I've had in the podcast. Someone introduced me to this concept of life is a series of trains almost. So like you're on a train and you're going from station to station, but like, you know, once you get there, that train's purpose was done and then maybe you're going to hop on the next one. And it completely changed my thinking because I always thought like up until recently that like you got to find, like you said, if it's my career, I got to find that one long-term career. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be there. or I'm going to be doing this thing forever. And like, everything's building up toward that. Like, you know, maybe you felt that way about your, when you launched your business, like this is going to be my, my thing. This is my crowning achievement. Exactly. Exactly. And now when I think about it from that train analogy point of view, I think, well, no, like whatever I'm doing right now in the moment is probably just this ride and they might relate to each other. They might not, but this doesn't have to be like the forever thing. Like there's going to be other intervals of this journey. And I kind of see that coming through what you're describing, like coming to the same revelation. Uh, Well, revelation is the perfect word for it. I've had so many conversations where when I was in the thick of a lot of this stuff, I found myself saying over and over again that I believed that my best years were behind me. I was a 40 year old woman thinking that like I was, that was it. I was done. I all it was terrible to live and think that, you know, the book and the business and those things like that was it. That was my shot at having good things. And I screwed it up. At least it's how I felt about it in my head for a long time. Like I screwed it up and I failed and that was my one swing and I don't get another at bat. So now I just have to sort of cope with whatever comes after that. And I didn't even, I didn't think there was another train coming. So I think for me, some part of the healing has been realizing that that was a speed bump, but it was by far not the thing that it, like I have so much other stuff to do. And the definition of success that I had 10 years ago does not need to be the one that I have now. Um, Or maybe it is, maybe I like, maybe I come back to that at some point and think that those are the things that I want, but but that I don't have to be like, well, that was a good run. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like I seriously, it was, it's actually really sad. I feel bad for the version of me that thought that those things were irrevocable, you know, because I'm in a much different place now and very hopeful and optimistic about the future, but I wasn't that way for a long time. So I love the train analogy because it's perfect. It, it, some of those events have purpose, but once they've lived their purpose, there's probably something else to focus on. I love it too. And what you just said, I didn't think there was another train coming. That's exactly how I felt. I mean, I didn't think the those words, I love those words you just used because that's a perfect phrasing of it. Like I thought this train, this is it. When this yep. train gets to the station, I'm done. But like you said, my best years were on that journey and that's it. It's over. Oh my God. I got to, I got to do everything, everything right now. And it's like, no, such a terrible feeling yeah. of despair too, because you feel just hopeless. Like there's, there's not, there's nothing you can do to change that outcome. And then you're like, well, now what? What? What do I do now? Why am I here now? And so, there's a whole bunch of reframing that has to happen before you can get to a place where you realize that, um, you know, the only permanent thing in life is death. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 before that, um, you know, we've got a lot of a lot of work to do. So it's been it's been a, a very difficult at times, but also very immensely gratifying journey to to realize that I have a lot of life left in me, and it's not all because it's not all work. You know, there's things that I care about and people I care about and experiences that I want to have that are not defined by my resume. And that was a really important awakening for me. And I, you know, everybody's journey is different, I guess, but that was a really important part of mine. 
I'm so happy that you've, you know, been able to work through that. I, I think it's, like I said, similar on my end here. And that idea that there are more trains and that this work I'm doing right now isn't my my crowning achievement necessarily, or I don't have to work endlessly toward it is such a great feeling to have. Well, the endlessly thing too, it's like, I mean, yeah. I like sleep. It turns out like sleep is great. <laughs> well, and it turns out your body likes sleep. Like no yeah. matter what you think, I've discovered this too. It's like, there's the, I've been thinking more about this, like mind and body connection and how we talk about the universe grabbing us and how your body can start to show physical signs of <sighs> your mind. And that's, you know, becomes literally very real then. Yeah. But also your your body doesn't lie. Like, I feel like your mind has this ability to potentially lie to you or you can, you know, you can get in a quarrel with it, right? And your physical body, like, won't lie. Like, it knows what it needs. It knows how to survive. It knows the the sleep it needs and all that. And it's like, you can't, you can't ignore that. So, I mean, even if you think, oh, I don't need, you know, seven hours of sleep. And then every night you get six, you feel like crap, but seven, you feel good. It's like, well, your body isn't lying. <laughs> no, it's not. It, the interesting, like, um, like footnote to a lot of the, the story I was telling you is that in, in the midst of all of that, in about, in like 2011, I got really sick. Um, and we didn't, I didn't know what was wrong. So there was, I was having basically an acute issue with my lungs that continued to deteriorate to the point oh where, gosh. um, I was on, I had to carry an oxygen tank and my, I couldn't breathe. It was, it was, That's I, very I was con- serious. It was it terrible. Very serious. It was serious. And, and I, I was convinced I was dying a hundred percent. I was totally sure that there was something terribly yeah. wrong. And in 20, I can't remember if it was 20. I want to say it was 2012. It might've been 13. I'm bad with dates, but, um, I went to the Mayo clinic because after exhausting, you know, several years of, of doctors here in Chicago that were completely baffled and treatments that weren't working, I went to Mayo clinic and I spent a month up there off and on, um, having them diagnose, like run me through every diagnostic under the sun. And it turned out that I had a, um, it's not a rare condition, but it's rare for a human who doesn't work with with um, with birds. And its its nickname is pigeon fancier's lung. It's called hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is a really long and fancy way of saying that I have an autoimmune condition that triggers uh, an inflammatory response in my lungs. So that I have it's actually scarily enough, it's very similar to how the current COVID situation affects people's lungs. And, um, it's, it's a really, anyway, so the bottom line was it was all of the down, the down comforters and the down pillows and things I had in my house were making me terribly sick. Found the cause. Yeah. It was the only, it was the only possible answer because I wasn't otherwise like exposed to lots of, you know, birds and things. (laughs) So, um, they were like, well, so I got rid of all the feathers. I had my ducks professionally cleaned. I spent, um, a little less than a year on steroids, which is awful. If you've ever, any, ever had to take prednisone, anybody will tell you it's like the best, worst thing ever. Like it saves your life, but it's a miserable drug to be on. Um, anyway, so I was really, really sick through a lot of what was happening with the business on top of everything. So it was like the the double whammy, of, like talk about the universe grabbing and shaking you and then kicking you in the teeth. It's like, hey, maybe, <laughs> yeah. just maybe you need to do something a little different. Um, you know, and I've, I've since had like one or two small relapses. If I get lazy, um, and like forget to tell the hotels when I travel to take the down comforters out of my room, I can have a, an episode. But anyway, the bottom line is like physically even your, yes, your body will mutiny if you don't give it the care and feeding and attention it requires. And that was something I always neglected and ignored. I, I like, I just sort of like I ate what was whatever was in front of me in the airport flying through wherever. And um, I drank too much and I slept too little and I didn't take good care of my body. And it wasn't about being skinny. It was about being like present in my physical self. And so there's a lot about recovering from that illness that has made me have to invest a lot more in taking care of myself. And so sleeping and eating and all those habits, exercising, um, have a different priority in my life than they used to. And that's something you would never have heard me say 10 years ago. I, I'm i just thinking in my head, I there's so much improvement I could do with 
the eating, the exercise. <laughs> like I know it's hard. It's so hard. And you know, ironically, the COVID situation and kind of the lifestyle changes with, you know, stay at home and all that um, have helped with that because mm-hmm. our, you know, lifestyles have adjusted in some ways that give us more time for these things. But yeah, I just, I'm thinking right now, I'm like, because I think our bodies are such, they're also very resilient machines almost because mm-hmm. they can take a lot of us kind of treating them like shit. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, we, we cannot do the optimal exercise, the optimal food and all that. And our bodies can kind of make up for it. And they're like, all right, we're, you're still going to operate fine and everything's, we're going to get you going here, but you might want to, you know, and we could keep doing that. And then eventually yep. they're like, no, you got to get this back up yeah. to something where I can survive here. Well, the interest, like I've always, I've struggled with my weight my whole life. I've always been a little bit of a curvier girl, let's say. Um, and my whole adult life, I've always struggled with that. So again, I had to reframe. It wasn't about getting skinny and being a size four. It had to do with mind and body nurturing. So yeah. the interesting thing about the whole pandemic situation on top of everything is that even in my job now that I love and is a much better balance for my life, I still travel quite a bit. And, you know, I have an office downtown that I commute to a couple days a week. But now that I've been at home for a few months, I've been able to like I'm getting out and walking slash I'm almost I'm having to jog now to get my heart rate up. And it's like I I always joked that I would never run unless I was being chased with a weapon. And here I am (laughs) running and not hating it. But like I'm up every morning out the door and doing three or four miles of walking and jogging and um you know, I'm eating differently because I'm home and I'm cooking and I can prioritize the the foods that I need to eat versus, you know, junk that I is so easy to come by when I'm on the road. So if there, if there are weirdly some silver linings in this for me um, that, again, are all about reminding me about the things that I need to prioritize that are easy to get lost in the shuffle when you're just like, go, go, go constantly. That's great that there's some silver linings. I mean, I, f- I feel like my... The mantra I've really adopted recently is like, as long as we're better today than we were yesterday, even if it's just a little bit, any amount, we're we're on the right path. So it's like, even going through COVID or any of these situations, like if you feel like you're better today than you were yesterday, then I feel like that's a that's a small win that's worth celebrating. I, I totally agree, and it's a little weird. You know, I'd written about this because I, I there's a there's a weirdness of feeling thankful for this respite because it like it's adversely affected so many people and and i've experienced loss too you know um uh someone not particularly close to me but like in my family um we lost to this to covid and it's like with all of the suffering that's come with it i feel a little bit of survivor's guilt feeling good about everything that's happened but in some ways it's been nice to reconnect with my kid and be home and have a calmer schedule and not be traveling so much. So sometimes I feel strange about being okay when, when there are a lot of people that are very much not okay, but I'm, I'm just trying to, to take what I can from this as a, as a way to think about how I want to architect my life moving forward from here and try to do that justice, I guess. You are not alone because you just described the exact same feelings I have both in the, I feel guilty and also the, well, how can I now make the changes I want to make and actually re-architect is the perfect way of putting it. Yeah. Isn't it funny? And you start, I like, I've actually made physical lists of sitting down and writing, like, these are things I need to prioritize. And I was talking to some of my colleagues the other day on our, our zoom happy hour thing that we were doing that I need to find a way to continue to give space to some of these things in my life. When we go back to whatever normal is after this, Um, you know, how do I prioritize exercise when I'm, on the road and traveling? How do I make different choices about how I feed myself, how much sleep I get, how much time I spend socializing with friends or pursuing hobbies to make sure that that balance stays? It's never going to be perfect. You know, some days or some weeks are crazy and some are not. Um, but I think making the intentional and concerted effort to prioritize those things is the important part because then it stays top of mind. So I, I don't know. I, I have a list. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> that's great. I, like I said, I totally, you're not alone here. I share all of that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. The same exercise is one of them. And just, yeah. How do I, these things that have been kind of silver linings, how do I make them permanent in my life? You know, how do these not become 
that was COVID lifestyle, but this is like, this is now the next chapter. It's the next right, train. Right, exactly. Um, I mean, I even bought new running shoes. Uh, come on. <laughs> like, <what>? Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. It's hysterical because it's just not a thing I ever would have thought I would spend money on before, but there you go. That's so important though. I, so I'm, it makes me so happy that you've found the running because I'm, I have not found running, but I'm the same way. I used to always joke that um, if I was catching a bus, like I could run three blocks sprint to catch the bus, but that's about as far as I could go. Right. But I love to bike, to cycle. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I've definitely had more time to do that. But one of the things this has forced me, kind of the COVID and Chicago kind of shutting down for a period of time has forced me to do is how do I bike now in other places, in other areas? I, I just bought a bike rack for my car. Right. And it's like all of a sudden the world, well, not the world, but the regional yeah. area within driving distance is my oyster. Right. And it's like, this is something that I needed to, A, spend the money in the bike rack, which in the long term is really a great investment. Yep. And then B, be comfortable with, yeah, maybe you're going to drive an hour out to Wisconsin and then bike all day. And you normally in the past would be like, I don't want to drive for an hour. It's a waste of gas. Is this and that. It's like, no. And this is something I want to bring forward now. It's like, this is the new lifestyle. Like you have a bike rack. So even when the bike trails are back open in Chicago, you can go drive out to Michigan and do a bike ride. And I'm like, I'm just smiling saying that because it makes me so happy. Like I'm free now. And it's so sad that it took this to free me. (laughs) Yeah, I I understand that. And and there's there's the, the feeling of like, wow, why did it have to take a pandemic? But like I said, you know, sometimes levers are funny things and the the signals you need from the universe are sometimes really strange ones. Um, some of mine have been pr- particularly brutal, but I love that you found that too, because it's like now you can make a concerted effort to prioritize that. And even if it can't be exactly the same as it is during all of this, um, it has a spot in your life that it didn't have before. And that to me is a, a win. I mean, we got to do those things, right? It's all about figuring out the little puzzle pieces that make life really worth living. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to ask you, you've written so much um, on your LinkedIn and elsewhere. You call it the fraud squad. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of this concept of imposter syndrome of I don't believe that I'm good enough to you know achieve this or to have this. And you know, I've definitely read a bunch of what you've written. And it's just so, I mean, it's, I feel the exact same way. And it's so, I, I, my hypothesis, maybe yours too, is that a majority of us are feeling this way. Some of us aren't familiar with the concept yet, or, you know, once they hear others talking about it, maybe feel more comfortable poking around and being aware of that. But I think it's a problem with us all. I'm curious. I mean, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning that you have kind of always, at least yourself, felt like you were never, you know, good enough to get there, or you always had to compensate. Did that... Like, where did that come from? Was that just kind of, like you said, starting with like, oh, I didn't graduate college and maybe that set the tone or like, where did you, can you find a core of that? I think so. I think it, I think it started, I mean, I don't know how like, you know, TMI we want to get here, but the, um, not going to college. And I was also, uh, I was in a very abusive relationship when I was young at like 19 and oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Thanks, but I mean, it was a long time ago. And again, similar to most life things, it d- does teach you something. And thankfully, you know, I'm here to talk about it. But it, I think that set a tone for a very young me um, about my worthiness as a human, you know, and I really struggled with that because it was like, I had someone in a in a very impressionable time in my life basically make me feel very unworthy. So I think I spent a lot of years constantly chasing my tail of just not thinking that I ever would measure up. And so for those who aren't familiar, I guess I should back up and say like imposter syndrome is a, it's not a clinical diagnosis, but it's it's a phenomenon that was researched at first back in the 70s, like late 70s, by a couple of female um, PhD researchers in academia because they had been looking around at a lot of the women that they were working with and realizing that these are very accomplished, intelligent, smart women, all of whom were constantly self-doubting and sabotaging themselves and being like, I can't do that. I can't publish that thing. I can't speak lecture at that conference. I can't because... And so the phenomenon that they studied was 
their original study was a group of high achieving women, like these academic women. And the upshot is that despite having evidence to the contrary, like actual evidence to the contrary of their accomplishments, it's the pattern of believing that your accomplishments are like a fluke. So anything that you've managed to put together is almost like an accident. And you're like, oh, that's never going to happen again because I just got lucky. Um, or, um, or slash and that you feel like the things that you've done at some point, somebody's going to call you out and be like, you've been faking it all along. And I know you're a fraud, like deep down, you're faking this. And so that's where the whole fraud squad thing came from, because um, it is pretty prevalent for, uh, and they used to think it was just about women. It's for sure is not, uh, as you can attest. Um, oh, yeah. it, it, you know, of everyone on the gender spectrum feels this kind of feeling. And a lot of people don't know what it's called. A lot of times when I'm out like doing talks or, or writing about this, they're like, I didn't know this had a name. Because people really identify with the feeling of feeling like they're going to be found out at any turn and that the rug is going to get pulled underneath them. And this is people, I mean, sometimes it's people who have 30, 40, 50 years of experience um, and name household names that you know. There's famous quotes by Michelle Obama and Oprah Winfrey and Michael Jordan and Neil Gaiman and people that you're just like, what? How do these people doubt anything about their accomplishments, and yet it happens all the time. Um, and my personal philosophy is that social media has exacerbated that, like pouring gas on a fire, because we can look at our, you know, everybody's nicely curated Instagram and be like, oh my God, I don't have a life that lives up to that. Or, you know, look at somebody's LinkedIn profile and assume that the fancy titles on there amount to something more meaningful than, you know, than what we're ever capable of accomplishing. So, it started as a kind of a personal quest for me because it was certainly something I felt and experienced. And so in true type A fashion, I started studying it. And I, I write to process what I've learned. So I started writing about it. And so here we are. I'm like in the thick of this. I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. I have half a book written. Um, my agent is very patiently <laughs> waiting for me to finish a proposal. Um but I like in it's very meta. I've had serious imposter syndrome about writing about imposter syndrome. It's like, who am I, you know, to do this? I'm not a PhD. I'm not a researcher. I'm not an academic. I'm not Brene Brown. Like, what the heck? What am I doing? Um, but it's been a really interesting journey to to do. So <laughs> that's fantastic. It's so it really it fascinates me because I think about this a lot. Well, first of all, I relate to that because, and I don't know why, but I have that same feeling always or more often than not, where, you know, someone's going to question my ability or my knowledge or, you know, me participating in whatever I'm participating in. But, and maybe you, maybe through your studying of this, you've come to some findings, but like, where is the line where we start to, how do I put this, where we almost start to like trust that someone is an expert or trustworthy or like, you know, almost believe them. Like, yeah. I, I see myself doing this all the time, right? Like you will, well, this is a whole separate conversation, but we are such judgmental creatures. Yeah. And so we're always judging. And then there's some point where you're learning about someone or something where you seem to, in your mind, cross the line of, I believe them, or they are an expert, or they are knowledgeable, or they are substantial in whatever it is they're doing, whatever it is they're saying, or, you know, and like... I wonder what that is, you know, because we're basically what I'm trying to say is like my fear of being found out is always like they haven't crossed that line yet. Like they don't believe that I'm, you know, I haven't convinced them. I haven't sold them that I am good enough to be telling them this or, you know, even like this podcast, right? Like I'm always thinking about, well, what am I being measured on? Right? Like if I, if I pitch an, or uh, send a pitch to a guest you know, are they going to ask me for a media kit? Are they going to ask me for download numbers? Oh my God, I don't want to send them my download numbers because I don't think they're good enough and this and that. Right. And it's like, it's just a swirl, swirling, you know, storm in your head. But I, I don't know. Oh, sure. Have you found anything? Like, is, the, is there a line or is there like something we're like and judging and then we're, we're comfortable after we get past that line or something? No. Um, bad news. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, no, no, there's no. not. <laughs> you're never going to get to the point where you're like, yeah, okay. I think I got this. Like, I, I think people who are wired that way, um, like, cause the goalpost, you keep moving your own goalpost at some point because it's like, 
I think to myself, who am I to write this book? And it's like, well, you've written one before. And I'm like, well, yeah, but like, I haven't written four. So, and at one point, like just being published to begin with was the thing I wanted to achieve. So it's like, I keep moving my own standard of what enough is. That's what it is. We're moving the goalposts. Okay. So we all just sort of, we all just kind of like once, some of us are really struggle to actually internalize our accomplishments. So it's like, I did that thing now I need to, like, I have to put something else in its place. Um, so part of it is actually the practice of, of, of learning that the, the things that you, and I use the word accomplish, but it, that doesn't necessarily mean achievement. It, you know, accomplishments can be all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, the things that you want, um, you actually have to spend some time, like, savoring the fact that you did them. Um, and I think that there, as I've learned in all my years on the internets, <laughs> you you are never going to be enough for everybody. There's always going to be a slate of people. I have like a, I have a slate of critics at all times who think that I'm garbage and think that my work is garbage. And it's okay for me to say that I'm not showing up for them. I, I don't have to be for them and I don't need to please them and I don't need to chase their approval. There are plenty of people that do like and support what I do. And frankly, I think there was a time where I regret that I didn't value that as much as I should, because I was always chasing the next thing. It's like, man, there's like, there's a bunch of people who actually think I'm pretty okay, like right now, just as I am today. Yes. And actually working to serve that community of people, of friends or colleagues or whatever, and investing in the people who have already proven that they are here with and for me was revelatory. And it sounds terrible to think about that like now, but I I just really devalued the fact that there were already a lot of people who thought my work was pretty okay. And I was always like, well, where's the next group of people who think it's okay? And it's like, who cares where they are? Um, who cares? So there's, I, in some, some people that I work with will think that I am brilliant and an expert and know my stuff backwards and forwards. And then there's a whole cadre of people that I will never convince otherwise that think that I'm full garbage and think that my work is terrible and think I'm a hack. And, and where do I want to spend my time and energy? I guess is the real question. So I don't know if it's about convincing me because I don't know that I will ever be satisfied, but I think it's as much about honoring the people who have showed up in my life and said that they like and value the person I am and the work that I do and looking at the work that I do now as an investment back in them, as opposed to chasing approval of some nameless, faceless group of people that I haven't met yet. I'm so glad we're talking because this light bulb just went off in my head that I've done that. I did that. I just, about a decade ago, I had, we didn't really have podcasts back then. So I called it a video series, but it was like two years. I was interviewing entrepreneurs. It started in Chicago. I started to do it on Skype all over the world. A couple hundred interviews every week. It was awesome. I loved it. Um, Online publishing. It's just, I love interviewing people. And just the other day, somehow I was looking back at some forum and doing some research on something, and I stumbled across this comment. The, the series was called Beyond the Pedway, and I had responded to someone, and someone responded to me and said, like, oh, I didn't realize you were the you know the host of Beyond the Pedway. I got to admit, I'm a big fanboy. I love the show. And in my head, I thought, what I would give right now to get a bunch of those people saying that about my podcast, about We're Only Human. I, I want that guy or gal to come back. And, and I thought to myself, you never even thought about that back then. You didn't know what you had. Like, you uh-huh. didn't give that comment probably a thought. Like, you just nope. thought, where's the next person? And why aren't there 10 more of them right here? Like, Amber, the light bulb just went off. I exactly. thought to myself, I can't let that happen again. I did that for a long time, you know, even writing um, my blog and the years that I spent investing in that. It was like, you're always chasing the next, you know, the the traffic hit or the next number of comments or the followers or the likes or whatever it happens to be, those stupid, stupid proxies for (laughs) self-worth. But, you know, you look at that and you start to get caught up in the earning of attention mechanics as opposed to um, caring and nurturing about the community that you do have, whether it's one person or 50 people or 500. Um, 
And I, I regret that now. I regret them like not really understanding that, um, it, which is hard for somebody who's been really immersed in social media and always really evangelized how powerful community is and realizing that I didn't do my own very good justice. Um, you know, there's, there's actually a woman who years ago left a comment and not, not on my blog, but about me somewhere else. And this is someone who I'd had very limited interactions with, not purposefully, just like we, our past had never crossed. And she left a comment on somebody else's blog, I think. And it was like, well, Amber, um, she's never even deigned to speak to me in person. And, and, um, she's just so full of herself and all these comments. And I was, I was wounded because first of all, I I didn't even know she wanted to talk to me. You know, I didn't know her at all. So I didn't realize that I had inadvertently somehow made her feel like I didn't want to interact with her because that was so far from the case. But she, she, she made a judgment about me for that. And has frankly, he's never associated with me since. And I hurt a relationship that I didn't even know I had or should have had because my lack of attentiveness to the people who were around me and my constant like eyeballs on something else meant that I was missing what was right in front of me and I hurt somebody's feelings and I didn't mean to. Um, uh, and to this day, when I see, her, you know, she, I, we have lots of mutual friends and acquaintances. And I, to this day, a lot of times when I see her online, I've tried a million times to come up with the the courage to reach out and be like, I'm, I'm so sorry. I made you feel that way all those years ago, but now she probably thinks that's stupid or something. But I was going to say, do you think she still feels that way or would even care? Like, do you, I don't know. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know. It's, I don't know. Um, but I've thought about it a lot of times and, uh, I don't know, maybe if she's listening, she'll hear it and she'll know I'm talking about her, but it's, um, it was a humbling moment to realize sometimes that I just, (sighs) I don't, it wasn't actually that my ego ever really got the better of me. It's just that I thought I didn't think I was that great, but I thought my job was to make people think I was great. And that was a, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. I think what you just said is spot on. I think so many of us, myself included, that's what we think. Our job is to make others think we're great. Like, you know, especially with like the fake it to you make it culture, which I think there's some <sighs> truth, like there is a growth technique of, you know, at the very beginning, you could fake it to make it. But this idea of like, I suffer from this, gosh, maybe up until maybe even now I'm doing it. But this idea of like you said, I got to sell, you know, what they what I think they the the level I should be at. I got to sell the growth, you know, the uh, podcast is a perfect example, right? Like I got to pretend I'm at the level that I think I should be at, that I think right. everyone wants me to be at, or they're not going to pay attention. They're not going to listen. They're not going to be on yep. the show. They're not going to promote this. And, oh, I think we all do that. We uh, Yeah, we we for sure all do. There's an interesting, I'll give you a horse analogy. So, um, so riding horses is a really interesting hobby for to humble you because getting on the back of a thousand pound creature who has a mind of its own and being like, hey, see that pile of boards over there? We should jump over that. Doesn't that sound like a great idea? And the horse <laughs> is like, yeah, okay, so sure, we'll do that. One of the hardest things about riding, and I think it goes with this analogy kind of works in a lot of places, is that there is never done there's never a point in this sport where you are finished learning how to ride better. And even the, the top athletes in our sport will tell you that there is no done. There's always a better relationship you can have with your horse. There's always, you know, technical things you can be tweaking. So part of learning to be a good horse person is learning that there isn't done. You're never going to get it. You're never going to check the box and be like, great, now I'm a real rider. It is constantly just building on what you know, and being comfortable with the fact that there is a lot of things that you don't know yet, and not asking yourself to try to ride at the level of somebody who knows those things. So it's like, I, I ride at a certain level, and I have a certain body of knowledge. And I can't expect to ride like somebody who has more than I do. 
So you can't fake it till you make it on the back of the horse. That's how you get hurt. <laughs> so, so in life, it's been interesting because I, I, I went through the same thing of feeling like I needed to pretend like I was one of the big guns, you know, and that I was influential and important and, and all those things because then people would like and respect me. And it turns out, nope, they still don't like and respect you. If they're bound and determined not to, it doesn't matter what you do. You know, they're so just reframing what my idea of success was, uh, was a really important part of that. I think that's a, that's always a work in progress. I think I always have days where I wish I had something, um, where I'm feeling a little bit like I wish I had uh, some kind of fancier accomplishment to my name. But the the reality is that for the most part, um, I'm pretty happy with everything that I've managed to do so far. And I'm a pretty content human. So I think that counts as a win in my book. I'm a big fan of this horse analogy. <laughs> I really am. That's but it's, it's it's so true. You can't, yeah. I mean, you just, you can't get on a horse and, and fake it till you make it. That's like, um, I mean, in the in the Grand Prix, which is like the the big top level of jumping with horses, those those fences that they're jumping are five feet high and five feet wide. And holy moly! If I got on my horse and tried to do that, we would both get, um, if not killed, irreparably damaged. Um, that's just reckless. So for me, it's just like it's not because I faking it till I make it there is a real dangerous game. <laughs> so, so you just kind of have to like be content to refine the skill set of the capabilities you have now. And I look at that in my professional life now and be like, I'm going to do the best I have. I can with what I have in this current moment and stop worrying about chasing whatever the next thing is, because it will show up in its time. And if I'm good enough to devote myself to the constant, process of improvement and getting better, um, that stuff will come and it will come in its own terms. And I, I just, I'm not wired anymore to be the person who chases that relentlessly. It's tiring and it's not gratifying and I don't want to do it anymore. I'm so happy for you. I feel, does it feel good to like look back and think, yeah, I went through some bad stuff and I don't necessarily like all that I was then, but I love who I am today because of all that. I think it do- I I think I'm actually still I, I the way I term it to my therapist is I still feel like I'm trying on somebody else's clothes. Um, I'm not sure it feels totally me yet. Like it's still a process of me learning and growing myself. So I still feel a little bit like it's new to me. Those the neural pathways aren't well worn in my head yet. So a lot of those old thoughts and habits do have a way of creeping in occasionally. So it's a I'm always having to work um, to to stay focused. So I don't know that I can like sit back and be like, ah, this feels so much better to be on the other side of that. Um, I think I'm still in the process of doing that. Um, but I can say that I am, I have deep compassion for the woman that I was um, all those years ago, because I recognize now how much pain she was in and how much, um, self-doubt was kind of my constant script. And just like you would somebody else that you love, you feel a lot of empathy for that person. And you're just like, God, I was so mean to myself and like borderline cruel and like, man, (laughs) that poor woman. So I feel, I, I, I feel, um, compassion for her. It's weird to talk about yourself in the third person, but like, I feel compassion for the human that I, that I was and sad for the things that I think I lost or missed out on, um, along the way. But, uh, I'm grateful that on the other side of that, I think I can navigate differently and do so from a place, um, and being a person that I really feel I can be proud of. I'm so happy for you, Amber. I just, I'm so happy. That's, it's also so interesting, almost like bringing it back. I, I kind of the whole reason I was interested in, in chatting with you on the podcast was at the beginning or no, the end of 2019, um, you had posted on LinkedIn, just kind of how you felt like, you know, the past year, you felt like you were feeling more like your old self, that you were waking Mm -hmm. up from sleepwalking and, you felt like you were breaking yeah. out of stag- being stagnant. 
And at the time, and even now, but I thought to myself, it's like she's reading my mind. Like, that's how <laughs> I feel. And then now, and I, the reason I mention this now, as, as, we, as I reflect upon our conversation here, yeah, I, you know, I'm starting to think in some ways, I think I'm trying to listen more to the universe, but through this podcast, I'm starting to think the universe is connecting me with certain people and maybe not telling you why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, we were definitely meant to chat. So thank you so much, A, for, for chatting with me today. I super appreciate this. But B, thank you for all you do, you know, especially through the digital channels, but to help others. I mean, you're constantly, all this fraud squad work, I mean, not just what you're studying, but sharing all that on LinkedIn. And, you know, like I said, I read all of it and I appreciate that. You know, it's especially, you know, learning even more about your journey today. It's not easy being open and sharing all that, but, and I, I'm sure you realize this, but I just want to say it, like the impact you have on others, you know, whether they tell you or not, is just, it's there. And thank you. I, I appreciate that so much. I think that, um, I'll close by saying that along this journey, me figuring out that maybe part of what I can contribute in a, in a, in a way that's different than, you know, again, fancy titles or executive roles is that I do have the willingness to get out there and talk about these things in a pretty candid and vulnerable way, because I think that part of my purpose is to open that door for other people so that they feel a little bit less alone and a little bit less afraid of the things that, uh, that rattle them. And to know that there's at least one other person out there who totally gets it. And, uh, I think that in and of itself and giving other people the courage to talk about their stories and their struggles and to drop the facade (laughs) sometimes and, and be real, um, is more important now than ever. And if I can have some little part in helping people do that, then uh, I think I'm okay with that. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Before you go, I would love to know what you had for breakfast this morning. Just send me an email, tim at we'reonlyhumanpodcast.com and let me know what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.